Hi there, Karen. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you for asking me to do this. Yeah, definitely. And um, so I'm, I've been very excited about this. I just, we were just sort of talking off the record. I was mentioning it's my first episode. Um, it's been a long time coming. I've been thinking about this for a while, but I just, I want to kind of outlay the the context of this conversation, just explaining how we know each other and you can yeah. add on. Um, so world family friends, your two kids, Ronan and Anya were in each of my sister's grades, Zoe and Maggie. Um, yeah. So we, we, and, and Ronan's just one year younger than me in school. So I was kind of friends with him, even though he was in Zoe's grade and we did family trips together and stuff like that. So yeah. I've always kind of known you, um, but I was, I was always the kid. So it's, I, you know, I, but, and, I and you had the you. best dog ever, Sadie. Yeah. yeah. A fantastic dog. That, that Australian, uh, sheep dog. Remember how yeah, it hated thunder and it would try yeah. and escape from your house and like eat a door to get out of the house. Yeah. The she was, uh, she was an escape artist. <laughs> Yeah, but like when you were at friend's school, the Quaker school in Baltimore with my kids, I saw your dad do one of the most iconic Shields family things ever. I was dropping the kids off to school, and he was walking across the grass with Sadie, and he took a shoe off, and he just threw it, <laughs> like a shoe, and, and Sadie brought it back to him. And it was just a classic, you know, uh, summer Wednesday morning in, in Baltimore, and... I, I couldn't think of a better way to start the day than to see that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sounds about right. Um, I don't remember yeah. that specifically, but that, yeah, that happened many times. So I can, <laughs> yeah. that was that's, fabulous. definitely checks out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of how we know each other. And then, um, the reason I wanted to speak with you is, uh, you've got a lot of interests and, and you're, you're, I mean, you're, uh, you work in the medical field, you have a lot of patents. Um, so you've, you're, you're kind of deep into the, into your fields. Um, and you're very successful with what you've done. And, and I've always kind of liked your perspective. It's to me, you've always kind of had like a, an almost a sense of humor about all of your pursuits, even kind of the serious ones. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I wanted to have this conversation, uh, with you specifically, but, um, I guess to dive in a little bit, I wanted to start with, with your childhood and kind of get a feel for what you were like as a kid, um, just to kind of set the context for your life. So where were you, where did you grow up? Sure. So I was born in Ireland, um, in 1961 and, uh, grew up there, which was, uh, you know, it's a relatively sheltered society and, um, my parents worked very hard. And uh, I don't know how they got three of us through university, but they did. Um, it was during the, so I was seven when the essentially civil war in Northern Ireland started. So from 1968 till, you know, the Good Friday Peace Accord, there were bombings, shootings, kneecappings, etc. And the first thing I wanted to be was actually a bomb disposal expert. Um, because it was such a brutal thing, and, and the news, the newspapers, the media were dominated by you know, bombs in bars, bombs in restaurants, car bombs, kneecappings, missing people, and it was a terrible um, environment. Background it made you aware of politics from a very young age mm -hmm. and um, causes, and also sectarian behavior and polarization in society. And in Ireland, when you grew up at that era, you could tell somebody's religion by how they said the letter H. 
If they said H, they were Catholic. If they said H, they were Protestant. And you could tell people's religion by their name. So it was a polarized society, not a great economy. And um, when I graduated from med school, there really weren't very many jobs, so, uh, unless your father was a doctor. So I emigrated to uh, New York and uh, left the surgical training program I was on and um, did really all my medical training in New York and University of Michigan. Um, trained for a year in Switzerland and then back to Johns Hopkins as head of interventional neuro uh, for 10 years, where I was on call every night for seven years. So when you saw me as, as a dad at the friend school, I was usually exhausted because I'd been up the night before. Mm-hmm. And the only day of the week that I could bring the kids to school was Wednesday. Because it was the only day of the week I didn't begin the day with procedures. Um, and I did, uh, you know, 30 procedures a week. And... Um, uh, treated a huge number of gunshot wounds and stab wounds in East Baltimore. And uh, eventually, actually, frankly, I decided we should leave because it was such a, a, a dark environment where you see the worst of humanity all the time. I felt it was bad for our soul, and we moved to Canada. And in the 13 years we've been here, I haven't seen a single gunshot wound. I haven't treated anyone who's experienced violence. Um, our healthcare system is free. And I uh, haven't given a patient a bill in 13 years. It's wonderful. Um, because, you know, uh, your health care in Canada is a civil right. And uh, just as your passport entitles you to habeas corpus and, and, and uh, just fair trial, etc. So we've really moved to a, a more enlightened society. Um, and the kids have been able to walk to school. And uh, I promised them if they moved to Canada, they would have a dog and walk to school. Um, just like you guys did by crossing that stream and crossing that field. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's actually been tremendous. And in the last 13 years, it's become more obvious that it was the right thing for us to do. Uh, you know, it's a gentle society here. Um, 90% of Canadians live within 100 miles of the U.S. border. And the rest is empty. So once you go 100 miles from the U.S. border, there's just no one mm-hmm. except bears and moose and uh, wildlife. So you'd like it up here. Um, you know, your, your family philosophy is, is so intrinsically Canadian anyway. Yeah. Uh, you guys should just move here, you know. Um, now, you'd have nothing to complain about. And you'd be happy. So it would be um, difficult for you because you couldn't give out about the government. Even our right-wing policies left of the Democrats, uh, you know, mm-hmm. so we just don't have a Republican Party up here. And um, it's, uh, it's a great place to live. Um, uh, Friends School was a fabulous environment for our kids to grow up in. That Quaker system where, you know, you can have any color hair you like, but you can't wear labels on your clothes, uh, emitting evidence of power or wealth. Uh, just really resonated with our, our values. And, um, uh, you know, so um, in a nutshell, that's that's what's gone on. Yeah. You know, uh, Roland and I, the kids, are, the kids are somewhere in the world. I'm not quite sure which countries they're in. Uh, I think Anya's in Belgium today. I don't know why. <laughs> why would anyone go to Belgium? You know, like name 10 famous Belgians. I don't think there are 10 famous Belgians. I can't. <laughs> um, she's there. Uh 
Um, the only more pointless country I can think of in the world is Luxembourg. Why is there a Luxembourg? <laughs> and what is a breakfast? Um, so, and, and then Ronan is in Italy, uh, I think. And um, things are good, you know. We're, we're, uh, we're safe, we're warm. We live at kind of like the apex of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm -hmm. Get to have philosophical thoughts, which is a privilege. Yeah. And um, that's about it. Gotcha. Um, all right, I want to dive into a couple things. Uh, so first, kind of going back to, to your roots in Ireland, um, how did you end up in the medical field? You said at, at, when you're seven and you wanted to be a yeah, bomb so deconstructor, how did you? I, I think um, I see medicine as a vocation. I don't see it as a business or a small business. Um, I see it as a liberal art. And, uh, you know, you can spend years reading poetry or studying the works of Joyce or Turgenev or Pushkin, or you can spend a night in the emergency room. And um, for a lot of writers like Somerset Maughan, who were doctors, the best characters came from the emergency room or the hospital that they were working in. And, um, uh, you know, I, I think it's the most liberal of the arts uh, and it's also a degree that gives you great choice in what you do with your life. You wind up really well educated. And, um, you know, I, I, uh, I would be crap at anything else. Why do you say that? <laughs> you know, it's a, I'm going to bring it up. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's an emotionally complex field that requires compassion and alertness. And not every day do you get it right. And some days you get it really wrong. Uh, but it's demanding and you continue to learn and study and grow. If you don't continue to learn, well, you won't be a very good doctor. Um, I, have those, I have many incredibly bright friends who trained really hard at university in physics and engineering, and then they never used their degree. And um, they spend most of their lives waiting for retirement. I think that's a tremendous waste of talent. And if you think of people in the world as elements in the periodic table, like Primo Levi did in his great book, um, talent is the rarest of the elements in the periodic table of human beings. And, and what is talent? Um, it's hard to describe, like the word quality, but you know it when you see it. Mm -hmm. I can see it at the racetrack and some young kid who's just really, really fast in the rain in a race car or you see it in an artist, or you see it in a sing singer like Billie Eilish or somebody, and you know that, whoa, that's talent, whoa. Mm -hmm. You know, or Taylor Swift, just intrinsic genetic gifts. I see it in inventors, and I see it in my students. Now, the, the thing is to nurture that talent, moderate it, help it uh, grow, help it be controlled um, and managed, and help it be expressed. So my job as a, um, as a teacher is to help people manage their talent or even discover that they have talent. Like you guys are so talented as a family. Um, you mentioned humor earlier on. Um, I think there's a relationship, for example, between humor and inventiveness. Mm -hmm. It comes from the same kind of unexpected association of ideas with an unexpected result. Um, funny people tend to be inventive. Mm -hmm. 
uh, um, you know, if you put a bunch of inventors in one room, you're going to find out they're actually really yeah. funny. Uh, um, but people who aren't funny, you can't make them funny. They can have somebody else write the words for them and they can say it at the wedding or at a speech, but they themselves will never be associative in that way. It's the same with inventiveness. And so we tend to build in academic institutions like this, these great institutes for invention and innovation and, and you know, spend millions of dollars on them. But most inventors do it in their heads and you can't teach it. And academic institutions will never grasp mm -hmm. that. Um, so uh, that's one thing I struggle with here in particular where the country has spent about $5 billion on innovation in academic institutions in the last 30 years. The total yield in terms of royalties or licensing fees is probably around $100 million. You have to build a really big boat to turn $5 billion into $100 million, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think this, this whole area of invention, not innovation, is, is worth talking about in this podcast um, because that's what drives society. And America's very good at this. And immigrants are disproportionately the inventors who created America. 33% of the patent holders at the USPTO are immigrants. 17% of the Nobel Prize winners in the US are immigrants. Um, Can you... Uh, whereas they represent something like only 11% of society. Interesting. And um, so uh, this issue of immigration, of invention, of humor, I think you can bring them together to create a kind of an individual profile. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's a genotype and a phenotype for that kind of behavior. Yeah. You know? And can, that make yeah, it sense? makes a lot of sense. I want to dive a little deeper into it. So you're an immigrant and you've, your, you've, how many patents uh, do you have? 81. 81, 81 82. There you go. Like so you're that. an inventor. Yeah. And I don't know. That's that's when you have a lot, when you don't even know. Um, and so yeah. uh, can you dive a little into the why of it and maybe through your personal experience? Um, why do you think it is that immigrants? Well, I, I never. Yeah. Yeah. They self-select by taking that step to do something risky. You know, whether it be because of war or deprivation or lack of opportunity, they have the Yiddish word chutzpah to go move and do something instead of the steady state and sitting there and disbelieving something's mm -hmm. going to happen. And um, if you look at the American Atomic Energy Program, that was developed and driven by Hungarian Jewish immigrants escaping from the Nazis like Slithard, a whole group went to Oak Ridge Labs and built that program. I've been visiting Professor twice there. It's the most fabulous place. Um, if you look at uh, medicine in the great U.S. medical centers, UPenn, Montefiore, NYU, Mount Sinai, New York, the ones that took immigrant doctors escaping in the Second World War from the Nazis have evolved and become more creative than the ones who are anti-Semitic and didn't. And I can actually show that in the work I did on patents. And I can show the migration of these people and then the patent creativity that came from them and the change in medicine that went with them. 
Um, and then as they moved around in a time-lapsed way, you can see the creativity they spread around the country. So migration uh, is, is, is a critical element in uh, the redistribution of creativity in the world. Interesting. We tend not to see it anymore like that. We tend to see immigrants as a problem. In fact, they bring talent, and they bring a work ethic, and they bring uh, a drive. Yeah. Um, the, the word complacency is coming to my mind. It's 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 hard to be complacent. Yeah, and mediocrity. And the big challenge in Canada is is mediocrity. Mm -hmm. We're so comfortable that um, we have no natural predator. Right. So. Uh, there's a tremendous risk of mediocrity in Canada. Um, the status quo. The great thing about Canada is the fairness. The fairness comes from process. Mm -hmm. You don't need an attorney to get a green card or to get a passport. The frustrating thing about Canada is the process. Uh, and so it, it's a yin yeah. and a yang, you know? Gotcha. Yeah. Um, quick time check. That's, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I, I hear the students clicking. Uh, they're actually working on this project in intellectual property with me. And, uh, um, you know, Jake, we could do this again if you have time, yeah. right? We could continue yeah, this. Yeah, I would love to. Um, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll stop this recording for now. Is this the kind of conversation you wanted to yeah, have? It, uh, exactly, pretty much along these lines. Um, I had a few other directions yeah. I wanted to go with it, but this kind of discussion yeah if, if you did if you just send me some questions mm -hmm. i'll think about them and give you 